Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Warriors. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. So, it's a new year, and I've been wondering what new things 2021 will bring. Hopefully less military murders, and I mean that in complete seriousness, Although this podcast is about military murder, when I first started it, I was hoping to just tell stories from the past, not new, fresh stories. But before we can move on, there is a big elephant in the room that's hanging around from 2020. You have all heard about Vanessa Guillen's disappearance and her subsequent murder, and that the guy who killed her committed suicide. Many of you also know that her family fought tooth and nail to get justice for Vanessa, even making their way to the highest office in this country, the Oval Office. Yep, they had a personal meeting with President Trump. Well, due to the Guillen family's persistence, a month after Vanessa's remains were discovered, the Secretary of the Army ordered an independent review of Fort Hood, specifically focusing on the command climate and culture. The report was released, and boy, was it a beast to read. But guess what? Your girl, Mama Margot, spent some time combing through it. And I wanted to bring you some of the highlights so that you know what went down and what the Army is going to do to fix it. Now, let's dig into this beastly report. My source for this episode is a Fort Hood Independent Review Committee report and the newsroom transcript from the date that the Secretary of the Army revealed the results of the review. This episode is just a snapshot of some of the things the committee looked into. I'm not going to cover everything, so if you really want a deep dive, then the report is online, and I'm going to actually link to it in the show notes. I wanted to mention that the committee focused a lot of its attention on the Sexual Harassment, Sexual Assault Response and Prevention Program, a.k.a. SHARP. That is not something that I will be digging into in this episode. I wanted to focus on other crimes, missing persons, murder, and how the criminal investigative unit handles cases, as that's the main focus of this podcast. Of course, before you look at any report, you want to know, so who was on the committee? There were five committee members who many of them appear to be practicing attorneys, including Christopher Swecker, the chairman who's an attorney out of North Carolina and is a retired assistant director of the FBI. There was Jonathan Harmon, a West Point graduate, former officer at Fort Hood, and now a practicing attorney and chairman of his law firm. Carrie Ritchie is a retired Army JAG. She spent three years at Fort Hood, and now she's a senior executive working as associate general counsel for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Kira Rodriguez is a retired Marine officer and she is regional director for Four Block. And finally, Jack White. He's a partner at his law firm where he focuses on government investigations 
and civil rights claims. And get this, he served as a law clerk for the U.S. Supreme Court after graduating from West Point. Now, that is a pretty prestigious position, so kudos to him. In conducting their investigation, the committee did a lot in a shortish period of time. In typical military fashion, death by PowerPoint is a given, so they received information from the inspector general in the form of briefings and in presentations. They received briefings about Fort Hood overall, the mission, the organizational structure, information on stakeholders, and they reviewed prior Fort Hood climate assessments. So if you're in the military, we have all seen these climate assessments. You get emails every now and again with them, so you kind of fill them out or whatever, and you kind of fill them out and you forget about them. Well, apparently, these surveys are kept somewhere in the universe for future reference, and that's what the committee reviewed. The committee also had access to databases from which they could pull information. They did their own independent research sometimes, and they did 647 individual interviews and group interviews where the group size was anywhere from five people to 45 people. The committee also did in-person meetings with civil rights organizations, local mayors, local law enforcement, local district attorneys, and the Guillen family. They conducted individual surveys, and the survey resulted in 31,612 responses from soldiers and civilians at Fort Hood. So that's just about everyone at Fort Hood took a survey. The committee was so willing to accept any feedback that they even created a hotline where folks could call and discuss information that was on the committee's charter. The first 50 pages of the report, in addition to just the introduction and basically what the charter is, it deals with the SHARP program and all of its flaws. And primarily the soldiers at Fort Hood felt that the SHARP program was a joke. No one was taken seriously when reporting a sexual harassment or sexual assault. And sometimes soldiers felt it was best not to report because of the way that other cases were handled. Some soldiers who wanted to report were told, fine, report, do what you want, but nothing's going to come of it. And that statement, while flippant, was often correct. Now I want to get into the Army Criminal Investigative Division program, which is basically the investigative unit for the Army. When referencing CID at Fort Hood, the committee found first that CID was ineffective. Say what now? A group of people whose sole job is to investigate federal crime is ineffective? Tell me more. Apparently, the Army likes to send a bunch of rookie CID agents to Fort Hood. At least that's what the committee discovered. Get this. 92% of the agents assigned at Fort Hood were at their first duty assignment as agents. During their rookie year, they receive, or at least they're supposed to receive, mentorship and constant evaluations from a senior agent. And to top it off, the agents who were there, once they were there for 26 months, they were quickly moved to a different assignment, which meant that once they got the hang of it, they were moved out and replaced with new rookie agents. The committee took an opportunity in the report to basically say that agents with less than two years on the force, they can't handle complex cases involving death, trauma victims, warrants, and forensic evidence. During the first two years, agents can competently conduct basic interviews and act as backup agents, but that's all. However, these rookies were tasked with monumental jobs way, way above their pay grade. 
Many armchair detectives think that an agent can just roll up to a person's house and look through all of the personal belongings. But, you know, obtaining a warrant and actually articulating probable cause takes more than watching a few episodes of true crime shows on IDTV. And this skill of providing sufficient probable cause to come up with a warrant was a skill that CID was lacking. But the committee didn't just make conclusory statements about CID being ineffective. No, they gave actual examples. And some of them are difficult to comprehend. And and I mean that in more of like, it's hard for us to wrap our head around the fact that an investigative agency doesn't know what they're doing especially as we're watching it unfold in the media. Specifically, the committee noticed the inexperience when looking at death and suicide cases from 2018 to 2020. The files allegedly lacked investigative detail, they were incomplete, and the documentation wasn't good. In one April 2020 death case, a soldier overdosed on meth and fentanyl. CID didn't conduct any interviews, they didn't investigate the scene, And the agents didn't even try to figure out how the soldier got the drugs that killed him. They didn't look into the soldier's past drug use, nor did they attempt to identify the soldier's friends. It was almost as if CID was like, well, another one bites the dust. They opened a file and quickly closed it just to mark a checklist item. According to the committee, the proper protocol in that particular case would have been to fully investigate the drug overdose case to figure out, okay, Where did he get it? Now let's shut this gig down. And well, that's just a drug case. In 2018, a shaken baby case that occurred at Fort Hood, CID interviewed the person who was last seen with the baby. That person lied and was like, oh no, I don't know, the baby must have hit his head. Now CID took that statement at face value until the autopsy results listed death was homicide. The guy later admitted that he shook the baby because the baby wouldn't stop crying, but the case then took 18 months to investigate. Apparently, that dude was court-martialed, but the results are not yet final. So I guess the case is still open in CID's books. And this next example is extremely interesting, yet terrifying. While they do not name the victim, I believe it has to do with a case that I covered in episode 41. The Disappearance of Elder Fernandez. And I'm going to read what the report says verbatim so that you can determine for yourself what case it refers to. Quote, deficiencies in failing to pursue all logistical investigative leads were also noted by the committee in another high profile case of a soldier who went missing and ultimately committed suicide. Conspicuously absent in the CID file was any documentation of a search for the soldier nor was there any indication that a key witness was contacted or interviewed. The totality of the facts contained in the file led the committee to conclude that the initial underpinnings of what might be a motive on the part of another to engineer the soldier's disappearance existed. At the minimum, important investigative threats that should have been identified analyzed and logistically run to the ground by CID during the initial stages of the investigation were not pursued, end quote. Okay, okay, say what now? Let's unpack that statement just a little bit. Did the committee just indicate that they think a suicide may have not actually been a suicide? Because, you know, first off, there's no statute of limitation for murder. And also a suicide can easily be staged especially if we're talking about Elder Fernandez. 
a man who had made a sexual assault allegation that was, quote, unsubstantiated. And mind you, we're talking about a report that went on to talk about how crappy the SHARP program was at Fort Hood. This is me right now. Girl, hold my earrings. Seriously. Now, I could be hemming and hawing about nothing, but that statement that I just read verbatim gives me great pause. I hope that someone is opening that case back up and further investigating. The Army doesn't like to be wrong about their suicide determinations. Now, mind you, I think Elder Fernandez's suicide determination may have come from the civilians. But, you know, the Army refuses to change the suicide determination from the Lavina Johnson case, which I covered in episode 40. But come on, the world is watching. Do the right thing. That should be the military's new model, if you ask me. Well, the committee indicated in the very next paragraph that the case file referenced above indicated that, quote, off-post suicides and deaths were not fully investigated by CID to determine whether there were contributory causes such as lifestyle issues, locations, or other influences that would inform the command about certain activities, people and places, etc., end quote. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. And guess what other high profile case highlighted CID inexperience? The disappearance of Vanessa Guillen. And here's what the committee had to say verbatim, because why reword what they so eloquently wrote? Quote, the committee noted that early in the investigation, various special agents conducted brief, choppy interviews of key individuals. In these critical early interviews, there was no indication in the file of whether the interviews were by phone or in person. There was no witness contact provided. 
there were insufficient details gleaned and no witness diagrams. The interviews appear to be rote and indeed checklist driven. There also appeared to be little cohesion as disparate special agents conducted important interviews that should have been tied together, end quote. So apparently the case file revealed that on April 24th at 2.25 p.m., special agent number one interviewed an arms room custodian and they jotted down that on the day that Vanessa vanished, she left her location to meet Aaron Robinson, a soldier who was alone in his arms room, which, by the way, was in an isolated basement, and Robinson staffed that arms room all day by himself. Meanwhile, another special agent is working Vanessa's disappearance, and that other special agent is looking at Vanessa's phone records, and they determined that on the day that Vanessa went missing, she had text messaged Robinson at 10.18 a.m. That same day on the 24th of April, which is only two days since Vanessa was last seen, yet another special agent interviews Aaron Robinson. And this would have been a good moment to get some important information from Robinson. Maybe ask him if he'd consent to a search of his phone, maybe grill him a little bit harder about what he knew. But nope, the special agent's interview is, quote, short, perfunctory, and lacked important details, end quote. If this doesn't make you want to pull your hair out, I don't know what will. Well, after the interview ended with Robinson, a different special agent called Robinson and asked some questions. During this discussion, Robinson told the agents about his interactions with Vanessa that morning, but he was very vague and his description lacked detail. So wait a minute. You mean to tell me that two separate agents interviewed this guy, one in person and one over the phone, within hours of each interview? Did the agents even talk to each other about that, what they were going to ask him or confirm that no one else had contacted Aaron? Did the four agents ever huddle after finding these pretty important details? I mean, it had been 48 hours since Vanessa went missing. It's like, yikes, there is probably nothing anyone could have done to save Vanessa, but all the agony that her family suffered, crying in front of the gates, wondering where their daughter was, and just all the absolute horror, all while the very people responsible for investigating felony-level cases were twiddling their thumbs when they had the perpetrator right there under their noses. Now, Let's talk about how apparently CID heard from, I'm going to call these guys the three stooges. So they happen to be non-commissioned officers. And if someone finds that common offensive, oh, well, but that's exactly how I feel that, you know, they acted. So these three NCOs were interviewed and they were like, yep, we saw Vanessa leave the arms room at 1330, which is 1.30 p.m. And we saw her walking towards the parking lot. Now, these people didn't even know Vanessa personally, nor were they even in her unit. They couldn't even agree on what she was wearing when they saw her. And the agents who interviewed them didn't even ask follow-up questions. The agents took everything at face value. The three NCOs later changed their stories, but it's unclear why or when they provided that information about, oh, I th we think we may have been wrong. But in any event, CID interviewed Robinson. Then they interviewed the NCOs and then they just took it at that and never even suspected Robinson until much, much later. There was something else that I found interesting and is strictly my personal interpretation of the report. It says, quote, 
CID did not advise her unit to change Specialist Guillen's duty status entry from absent without leave AWOL, despite the fact that her car keys, barracks room key, government-issued cat card, and wallet were left in the squadron headquarters arms room and she never returned from what was supposed to be a brief visit to the other arms room to meet with specialist Aaron Robinson, end quote. So wait a minute. Vanessa was actually marked as AWOL in the army books? I had never heard of this. This may be because that's the only status that existed at the time when you didn't show up for work and they didn't know where you were. But Wolf, clearly she couldn't take leave even if she wanted to because her comrade freaking killed her. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. In addition to being inexperienced, the committee noted that CID was overassigned, meaning that they had too much stuff on their plates. And I'm sitting here like, same, y'all, same. But I feel like that may be every single job in the military. It's like, here, be a master of your job, but while you're at it, can you clean the bathrooms, serve lunch at the enlisted club, clean the outside of the building? Oh, and here, plan the holiday party, the promotion party, And don't forget to order those quarterly awards, okay? Like that terrible boss from Office Space. You know who I'm talking about. That's what it kind of feels like, you know? With regards to overassigned agents, this was clearly not the agent's fault. And by the way, neither was the inexperience. But also common sense should prevail in where someone needs help, they stop, ask for help, like, hello, we have a missing person and lots of media attention and we need some help. The report did acknowledge that once a CID report of investigation is completed and sent to military lawyers, the lawyers, also known as judge advocates, have to return a case to CID often to obtain follow-up evidence, likely information that could have easily been obtained the first go-around if the agents were more experienced. Another finding that the committee made was that CID was under-resourced. In this section, the committee focused on the lack of community engagement between CID and local law enforcement. Mind you, Fort Hood in and of itself is a pretty large city, but oftentimes the majority of soldiers at a location live off post and it's important for community relations to be good. You want the senior CID agent to be able to call the chief of police from the local town to discuss a case or whatever. Shoot the crap, you know. 
Apparently, that relationship is non-existent at Fort Hood. In fact, according to the report, the Killeen PD asked CID to embed an agent with them because they handle over 100 soldier subject cases a year and many victims of civilian crimes are military. But their request went unanswered. The local police department also offered CID to do ride-alongs, but they were not taken up on their offer. And during the committee review, it was revealed that the Killeen PD chief had never even met the officer in charge of CID until he saw him in passing at a press conference regarding Vanessa's case. Along the lines of under-resourced, the committee noted that CID just didn't have the proper equipment needed to do their job effectively. For example, for complex cases that needed forensics exploitation, they were too slow and they didn't have the forensics exploitation equipment. They didn't have the licenses and the agents were too inexperienced to retrieve, analyze, and exploit the forensic evidence even if they had the appropriate machines. Warriors, do you remember when Vanessa Guillen was discovered and I was kicking and screaming about the facts of the case? Like, wait a minute. Robinson was the last person to see her and he allegedly killed her in the arms room with a hammer. How much blood was there? Probably a lot. And there is no way on this planet that that man cleaned up that blood in such a manner that it wouldn't have been discovered with just a little bit of luminol. And mind you, CID doesn't even need a warrant to go into the arms room and luminol the place. All they would have needed was a commander's permission, a little bit of luminol, and this case would have been solved on April 23rd. In fact, it would have been solved on April 22nd by 10 p.m. Under the resource column, the committee also talked about the lack of agents capable of leading a complex investigation. As was evident when four agents all touched the Vanessa Guillen case two days after she went missing, and it appeared no one was communicating with each other. There was no lead to tie all the pieces together. And then apparently the agents were having issues getting sufficient important information to draft even a simple warrant to get a search. The committee was also quick to acknowledge that it wasn't until outside agencies got involved, including the Texas Department of Public Safety, the U.S. Marshals and the FBI, that the case was broken. And let's not forget that those agencies got involved due to the Guillen family and the media attention that the case got after Vanessa had already been missing one entire month. The committee also found that there was no real training on what to do if a person goes missing. There was no established protocol. NCOs were left to their own devices. And one thing in particular that the committee noted was that in reviewing CID death investigations, quote, there was scant information in the files as to the initial action of deceased soldiers units when and if the soldier failed to report, end quote. The committee discovered that in 2006, there was an incident where a soldier failed to show for work and they placed him on AWOL status. A month later, they changed his status to deserter and 10 days later, he was discovered dead in his home. Turns out when the unit initially went to go look for him when he failed to show up, they went to one of the soldier's old addresses. <laughs> now, the status known as AWOL basically was the default. So so-and-so didn't show up to work, marked them as AWOL, and the unit rarely did any digging. And then to add insult to injury, the Fort Hood Police 
follow the old 24-hour rule. Someone has to be missing for 24 hours before we'll do anything. But that is not a real thing. No, 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 no. But apparently that was what they were following at Fort Hood at the time that Vanessa Guillen went missing. The military police on Fort Hood refused to begin taking any investigative action, even though her disappearance was super suspicious. And even when they took action, they determined, quote, that she was in no known danger, end quote. <laughs> what in the world? Additionally, a bolo be on the lookout was not sent to local law enforcement until almost midnight on April 24th. The girl had been missing for over 50 hours by that point. With regards to how NCOs obtained accountability during COVID lockdown, that was all types of whack. Every unit did it differently. Some did it over video conference. Some required in-person check-ins and others even allowed for text message check-ins. But the committee discovered that during a missing persons investigation, CID actually spoke to an NCO who advised, quote, 50% accountability is good enough, end quote. <gasps> what? Since Vanessa's murder, the Army has implemented new steps. The checklist now calls for entry of the missing person's information into the National Crime Information Center within two hours of a person being reported missing. It also calls for entry of the missing person's name into the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System within 24 hours. And on top of this, they do activate the Crisis Action Team, the CAT team, to get all interested parties, commanders, first sergeants, investigators, legal, all involved in talking to each other and coming up with a game plan. The committee focused some of its efforts to discuss the recent media attention brought to Fort Hood. The committee wrote, quote, the impression created by the intense media coverage focused on Fort Hood during and after the Vanessa Guillen case was that crime is out of control at Fort Hood and the surrounding communities, end quote. Now, while the committee debunks the idea that there is excessive crime in the surrounding civilian locales, it does fail to debunk the accuracy of the media hype on Fort Hood. In fact, in a statement about the statistics, it says, quote, the data provided by the Army, it shows that there were only four aggravated assaults reported to CID involving soldier victims off post in 2018. End quote. So there's four aggravated assaults in off base in 2018, four in 2019 and five in 2020. In comparison, though, on post, they reported nine aggravated assaults in 2018, which is compared to the four off base. Thirty two in 2019 compared to what? Four in <laughs> off base and thirty one aggravated assaults in 2020 on post compared to the five off post in 2020. Now, come again now. So the violence on base is eight times worse. That's not good. But then, of course, CID steps in and was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Those off post numbers are undercounted and not actually tracked by CID. And then the committee includes a chart on page 107, if you're interested, that actually shows how many victims fell victim to crimes on post and off post. And the numbers are really frightening. 
In a separate section, the committee acknowledges that crime rate on Fort Hood is high when compared to other posts and across the Army. And that chart is on page 110 if you want to take a look at it. Some of the group interviews revealed that soldiers felt that Fort Hood wasn't safe. Some soldiers believe that leadership was so mission-driven that the health, safety, and welfare of soldiers came last. Many soldiers shared sentiments that they felt safer in Kuwait and Afghanistan than they did in Fort Hood. And some concrete things that soldiers pointed to that made them feel this way were lack of surveillance cameras on post, the fact that they only ID one person in a car to get entry to the base, and everyone in the car can just come on on post. Many felt that there was inadequate lighting in restrooms, arms rooms, barracks, and housing. Some even shared that some people voluntarily went AWOL just to get away from Fort Hood. And I found this next statement to be particularly devastating. It said, quote, many acknowledged that they, along with their junior soldiers, joined the army to escape the same type of community they now find themselves a part of in Killeen and Fort Hood, end quote. And even more sad, some soldiers shared the sentiment that there was no respect for soldiers who passed away. One of the big takeaways and a theme that I noted throughout the report was Fort Hood leadership's reactive nature towards crime. They didn't actively attempt to stop crime from happening, but approached crime from a defensive posture. It appears that there are various living areas off posts that are high crime areas, But it also appears, due to the housing allowance, that that is the exact location where soldiers can afford to live. But leadership, knowing full well that these locations only breed crime, never thought to place these housing areas on the off-limits list. For those of you wondering, most military installations have off-limits lists. It's a list of shady places in the surrounding area where military personnel are ordered not to go be it a strip club with many stabbings or a bar where gangs are known to congregate. The Fort Hood off-limits list is seven years old, and during interviews with Fort Hood soldiers, soldiers had never even heard of the list. The committee, while visiting Fort Hood, came across some other issues which it was not told to investigate but which the committee did not feel comfortable ignoring. And for this list of items, you can check it out on page 129. I want to comment on one that just made me cringe laugh. If you know what a cringe laugh is, that's what it made me do. And it was under the heading, quote, mold, barracks, family housing, and other facilities, as well as quality of life issues, end quote. In this section, they discussed the common complaints about living in workspaces with persistent mold, bug, and pest infestations, lengthy wait times for needed repairs, and inadequate or non-functioning lighting. In workspaces, some soldiers describe the sound of mice scurrying in overhead ceiling tiles and the prevalence of mice feces and urine in mortar pool areas. Of course, the committee recommended that the Army look into that. But I just wanted to share a personal story because, you know, because I can do that. I PCS this summer, and in my search for housing, I considered on-base housing. I had a friend of mine do a virtual tour where I got to visit the houses that were going to become available. And of course, you know, I'm kind of 
a bougie person. I come, you know, I was living in a DC area where it was a very sought after neighborhood and now I was looking to move on post. So first house I look at, it's, you know, it's okay, but you know, it looks kind of old. And then when we get to the master bedroom, it has one sink and a tiny little tub shower. And then the guy who lives there at the time says, yeah, you see that area up there by the bathtub? Every three months, the mold comes back and you have to keep on housing to come and fix it. And they keep saying that they fix it, but it keeps coming back. Mind you, by this point, there is a look of horror on my face. And I'm already not sold by the one sink master bathroom, considering my husband and I are both active duty. And that would be a nightmare in the morning. So I'm just kind of like, oh, okay, cool. (laughs) You know? So then I look at this other place. I'm like, okay, maybe this is a different, maybe this other place is better. Still on post. I am getting a tour, a virtual tour by the current tenant, and she's taking me through. And she's really trying to sell me on this house, which, by the way, I think she's lived in it for over five years. She's telling me you want to live on base because off base is just not safe. She shows me the house, which, you know, was fine. It was nothing spectacular. But she says, listen, we had to remove everything from our attic because of the asbestos. They told me that they're going to mediate it, but you have to stay on top of them. (laughs) Also, she tells me that I have to be careful because The houses are so old, historic housing, that they were originally painted with lead paint and that even though they have since been repainted or whatever, sometimes when they clean the outside of the houses, the original lead paint chips off and you can potentially track it into the house. Again, I'm on FaceTime with this person. I'm trying to keep a straight face. I'm trying to be like, I'm so sane. Like, I'm not crazy. Like, am I crazy? Like, what's going on? But you guys know, I mean, I, I, I just couldn't. I was just kind of like, oh, OK, yeah, you know. So I hang up the phone, quickly call my husband, practically in tears. And in my best Mama Margot voice, I tell him, babe, I'm taking my chances with the criminals off base because at least with them, I stand a chance. If we live in an asbestos mold, lead paint infested house with two little girls and any one of us gets sick, We are screwed because it's the military, you know? (laughs) So anyway, after that, I did a little bit more research. I found a Facebook page called The Military Housing Crisis. And that just about sealed my answer. We ended up finding a really nice place off base built in 2017. So none of those crazy issues. I do have a Simply Safe home security system and we have an arsenal of weapons. So, you know, we can handle ourselves. (laughs) Back to the report. About the housing crisis, there was a family that was interviewed and they clearly started having health issues after living on post for a while. And the family complained and complained and complained. And they were pretty public complainers. And guess what? The family received a letter from the garrison commander stating, quote, family housing is a privilege, not a right, end quote. Excuse me. (laughs) To which the committee responded, quote, once again, it appears the human touch is missing at Fort Hood, end quote. At the end of the report, the committee makes it clear that the current culture at Fort Hood is not something that recently developed in 2020. It all stemmed from a culture that went from hard rule following, then became a place where rules were, you know, more squishy than concrete. And then those squishy rule-breaking mentality started to harden and set. And that's where we are now. The Secretary of the Army was quick to indicate that he has assigned a group of people 
to come up with solutions to the issues discovered through this review, and they are set to start implementing solutions immediately, but definitely not later than March of 2021. Also, the Secretary of the Army did indicate he has lost confidence on various Fort Hood leaders and 14 persons specifically were either removed or suspended from their positions. I hope that you all found this episode helpful in understanding how things went down at Fort Hood, especially in considering Vanessa, Gregory, and Elder's disappearances. It just breaks my heart if I was any of their family members and reading a report about the incompetence and just how the Army could have done better. For more episodes of Military Murder, make sure that you subscribe, that you click subscribe so that every Monday when I release an episode, it automatically gets to you. Make sure that you're following me on social media, on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and on Facebook at Military True Crime. This show was created and produced by Mama Margot Productions in collaboration with all of my fan club members. And the music was created by Tie Ops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Podcast.